Yeah. Um, but anyway, we still though, I was in the end, I was just like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, let's get started. All right. Uh, hello and welcome to the Watcher's Guide to the Marvel Universe. The little podcast that may be kind of good. I am Max. And I am JR. How goes it? Oh, it goes. Uh, We continue to shelter in place for the most part, wash our hands obsessively, and uh, play video games. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I I apologize that we haven't uh, recorded for the past... Two weeks. Is that right? Two weeks? Yeah. Uh, dear follower, uh, I I was sick. And even after I was feeling a bit better, my voice was such that I could not sit here and talk for yeah. any length of time. Um, Having and... any kind of sickness or allergies or anything right now, your brain is just like... And anxiety on top of it. You're just like, mm-hmm. well, cool. Yeah. My lungs are yeah. going to seize. This is fantastic. Well, and, you know, so my, I, I saw, I have a fun grab bag of problems. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest are uh, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was saying at one point, like, the problem is I, I go to, I tend to go to the store when we need to go uh because for one thing i'm a stay-at-home dad casey works we cannot afford for casey to get the rona like that's all there is to yeah. it um so i would rather step in the line of that potential bullet um, right but what it means in practice is that i go to the store and then for hours afterward at least maybe a day or two afterward my anxiety is just like not only second guessing everything i feel right uh, physically but then like is also trying to create stuff and it's just kind of like no jr if you were exposed to something whether it's the coronavirus or anything else even a cold it would not manifest this qui- this quickly after a trip to the store. This yeah. is probably anxiety. Yeah. And even if it's not just anxiety, it's probably not that. Yeah. Chill. Like, yeah. so yeah. Um, it's fun. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> All right, let's do news news uh so san diego comic-con has been canceled uh but on a honestly i for my part i feel like san diego comic-con exists for two reasons at this point one is to announce shit and you can do that regardless you know so all of the stuff that uh, <clears throat> that uh, you would otherwise be able to do 
during Comic-Con, uh, as far as that goes, you can still do. Um, the other reason is buying cool exclusive shit. Yeah. And, like, meeting people and panels and stuff like that. That part, I get it. It sucks. But, I mean, I'm also not going to get to see Rage Against the Machine. So, fucking deal. <sighs> like, uh, Well, after E3 got canceled, um, <clears throat> Spike Trotman is uh, the... She runs Iron Circus Publishing. Like she right. hasn't gone to CD um, or SDCC for ever, personally. But she sends people, and uh, she was talking like this is kind of, you know, it's kind of a big deal. It hasn't closed for fifty years or something, and um, this is the first time it's been canceled in forever. But at the same time, good on you. Like this is not over. Yeah we need to not do this right now. Especially something like San Diego. I mean, yeah, a smaller con you could go, you could maybe make a case for, but I feel like San Diego is, if, if it were to happen, it would be such a flashpoint of potential disease. Even yeah. more so than it already is. Right. I mean, con crud is a thing. Yeah. And so, con, con crud multiplied by corona is not something you need. I was actually just thinking when is the next PAX supposed to be? August. So. <clears throat> I will be... I will be genu- genuinely surprised. Like, our local con... Planet Comic Con has been rescheduled for fall. Yeah, because that's I don't supposed know. to take. I don't know. <laughs> Planets, that's a fucking weekend in Kansas, downtown Kansas City. Because Planet Con, the uh, Big 12, and something else all happen at the same goddamn weekend. I think it's, uh, is that the American Royal? Are all yeah, the, I think so. It's all the same weekend, and it's just like, the fucking craziest week in February and yeah, March. Yeah, downtown downtown Kansas City during that during that time. If you don't have to go, don't. Yeah. <laughs> like just don't. There is nothing for you there other than anger and anxiety. There's but, uh, no park there's no parking downtown during the day normally. Because our town is ti- is relatively tiny, honestly. Um, da- well, our, it, our downtown is. is relatively tiny. Our, and, da- our downtown is small as shit. And yeah. yeah. But um, add, to, add to that the fact that, you know, our even even for the size our downtown is, yeah. it's not well designed parking wise. No. Um, then you throw all of that on top of it and it just becomes... A goddamn mess. Yeah, a hundred thousand nerds and a hundred thousand sports fans, all from differing states, and yeah. rodeo people, yeah. and like the people that are just going to be there anyway. And yeah, it's, it's my dumbass who has to go to work. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, and it's it's shitty. Uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> I don't know. 
Um, we should San talk. Diego is canceled, but yeah, we yeah. should talk about the things people are doing. You said you had some sources for like auctions and stuff that people are doing to the try to at least support the artists. I feel really bad for the writers. Well, so so that's that's one thing. Um, so the the yeah, the writers are kind of because barring barring selling scripts or whatever else there's not a lot they can do uh an, an artist can uh sell prints sell commissions whatever but yeah uh so the the bigger companies are trying to do what they can to get some digital only or digital digital first i guess i should say stuff up and running <clears throat> in order to keep people busy uh and employed by the same token um so a lot of uh there is a hashtag on twitter to check out which is uh creators god damn it <laughs> let me look it up uh but the the idea behind it is that various creators are doing auctions <clears throat> in order to um in order to uh help support comic shops there is a there is a certain organization that they're all going through um <clears throat> creator it's hashtag creators for comics um and there are a lot of people, very big people, uh, that are doing uh, auctions to help support comic shops that are otherwise struggling with nothing coming out. Um, <clears throat> Alex Malieve, uh did, is auctioning a Daredevil sketch. Um, Craig, Greg Capullo is doing a Clayface sketch. Uh, Scott Snyder is doing a, is auctioning spots in a one-time only live on cl online class on writing first issues. Uh, David Mack is selling, like, uh, Gail Simone has five different, uh, different, uh, auctions she's put together that are like, <clears throat> excuse me, one was, uh, one had a bunch of, uh, Birds of Prey stuff that was like, signed comics from Gail Simone, a crew shirt, uh, signed by the screenwriter for Birds of Prey, plus a, a Zoom conversation with Journey Smollett and, uh, fuck rosie perez i was uh, trying to i was trying to say renee montoya and i'm like what is her name jr so it's really cool check it out i mean a lot of them are getting expensive because there's some really cool stuff on offer um but it's for a good cause and there's a lot of ron mars is selling a bunch of comics uh 
stuff like that. So I can't remember who it was, but I saw somebody that was setting up an auction, maybe for the same thing. That was they would run a couple sessions of the die RPG as well. Mm. I don't remember yeah. who the who the hell that was, and I wish I could, and I'll try to Twitter search it now, but I will fail. So go ahead and fail. Uh so yeah, so there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of really cool stuff there to check out um you know if you if you want to support the industry not just not just the publishers but also local comic shops there's a lot of stuff available out there uh to do it i we will continue trying to highlight stuff as we go but like there's a there's a lot of stuff out there you can do even though comics aren't coming out right now. Um, so anyway, comics. Comics. Speaking of, uh, we start this week with X-Men number 101. It, so, was, Car- it was Karen Gillian. Or Gillian. Karen Gillian? Yeah, who okay. he, he's, or they were saying uh, that they'd, they'd run a game for, cool. uh, they started a bit at 50 and... Winner pays Bank Foundation. Yeah, that's okay. that's the organization most of them are going through. I I love the idea of running. I I was unaware that there was a straight up. I knew there were rules in the back of issues, but I didn't know if they'd been collated as such. I like the idea of running a game like Die, where. You create a character in the real world and then a, a D&D type character for them based on who they are. Yeah. And so it plays off of all of that. And yeah, the it's really cool. I, I like that. Um, anyway, X-Men number one, uh, or number 101, sorry, uh, has a cover by Dave Cockrum and Danny Crespi. Is written by Chris Claremont, penciled by Dave Cockrum, inked by Frank Chiaramonte, Colored by Bonnie Wilford, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Archie Goodwin. So, in our last episode, we left off. The shuttle is headed back to Earth, and Jean is being consumed by nuclear fire, basically. Um, This issue kind of has two parts. So, the first part is the crash landing and... Phoenix coming up out of the water. Jean goes to the hospital to recover. Um, Xavier sends the X-Men on vacation because, frankly, he just fucking can't right now. Uh, between, Between what's happening with Jean and his own issues with these visions he's having that we'll eventually learn are Lalandra... Um, he just cannot deal with everything. Um, so the second half of the issue is the X-Men, uh, Sans Cyclops going on vacation to, uh, Banshee's ancestral home, Cassidy Keep. Um, and then the end of the issue is them coming under attack from, uh, Black Tom and Juggernaut. So, 
This issue, there are several interesting things. Number one, I'm really happy with uh, with Cyclops' reaction to everything. Um, him at the hospital, I thought was really effective, uh, being the scene where he kind of goes off by himself and Nightcrawler goes to check on him and just finds him breaking down, crying with relief, I thought was really well handled and was a character moment that I give a lo- I give Chris Claremont a lot of shit. I do. Uh, because of later <laughs> Chris Claremont. But uh, but this is really good. I, I thought it was phenomenal. Well, and there's two um, parts. There's two parts, character parts to that uh, little scene as well, because not only do we actually get to see that Cyclops isn't made of goddamn stone, right? right. Like he's been freaking out the whole time, but... And cursing the, himself for the wasted time. Yeah, he he thinks and, he he's been, but it's all been directed at himself, right? Um, then when he finds out she's going to be okay, and he just fucking deflates into yeah. uh, he liquefies, right? And yeah. you're like, oh, that's cool. And then the other side of that, like the smaller part, is Kurt checking in on him and being like okay and then kind of backing out of the room slowly and then it's really cool that he just when he comes back to the group xavier's like where is he and he's like he'll be along just just that little bit of like just he doesn't explain anything he doesn't say like he needs some time or like any of that it's just like he'll be along and uh, yeah just lets him do what he needs to do and it's really good that's a nice thing because, you know, Nightcrawler is Nightcrawler. We also uh, get the start of a minor love triangle between uh, Storm and uh, Peter and Kurt. And yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's hilarious to me that neither Peter nor Kurt know that they're punching out of their weight class. Like... <laughs> like storm uh, i feel like kurt kind of i feel like kurt kind of knows it but he's like gonna shoot his shot anyway <laughs> yeah and like sure that's fine um yeah i it's i mean it's really easy to forget so so we find out this week exactly how old storm is um which is to say she is 26 years old. Colossus, I want to say, is maybe 19. Kurt is probably not far off uh, from Colossus. So, A, the fact that she's an older woman. Uh, B, the fact that it's fucking Storm. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, Yeah, like... Yeah. Um, see the fact that these are both these are both guys that have lived relatively sheltered lives. Yeah. You know, Colossus grew up on a uh, on a 
uh, communist collective. Kurt grew up in a circus, uh, so they're they're not exactly super worldly. And it's not to say that Storm can Storm can be. Everybody has moments where they're naive. Even the most worldly person has moments. Uh, but Storm has lived a lot of life in a lot of places. She's been a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and this is... This is... Storm is, quite frankly, too much woman for either of them at this point in time. Yeah. Um, we also have the first out-and-out... Uh, mention of Wolverine has feelings for Jean. Yeah. Uh, he's been kind of like whatever, but here he he's coming to visit her in the hospital and bringing flowers and thinking about how he's all twisted up because of some woman. Um, so there's that. Uh, one One thing that I found really interesting is... So, you know, we find out later that this isn't Jean, but at this point in time, that was the plan. This is Jean. She has simply reached the the apex of her powers, but it's her. Um, what's really intre- what's really easy to get turned around on is that it is very it's very simple to think that given that maybe Jean would not have gone down the road she did if it weren't for the the intervention of the Hellfire Club or what have you but the fact is there is a very dark moment with uh, with um, Jean and her roommate Misty Knight wherein you know misty's like left alone with gene and gene is just like so what would you do just hypothetically if you died and brought yourself back to life and her face is like it's it's clear there's some shit going on already yeah um would it have been as bad if the hellfire club had gotten hadn't gotten involved who's to say but there was definitely it was already having an effect on her um yeah so yeah yeah. uh what's what's interesting about phoenix there are there are a few things here uh number one i really like so gene's costume was originally supposed to be white and they they did eventually use the white costume in later Phoenix stuff, but the plan had been that instead of green and gold, it was going to be white and gold. However, the newsprint was such that there was the concern that you would see what was on the opposite side of the page in Jean's costume. So they went with green. Um, I, uh, I did not know that until I actually, I went 
to Planet and Chris Claremont was there and he had a thing on his table about the white costume. Um, and uh, I just find that endlessly fascinating. Um, yeah, because I didn't know that, but I would have hated the, or not hated, I guess I, who's, I don't know. I, looking at the cover of 101, if you would have put white on that, I'd have been, it's just a good fucking cover. That yeah. is why, like, I, you're like, I wanted, it was going to be white. And I'm like, I hate that. But I don't know. It still yeah. would have been a really rad cover. So who knows? Yeah, it's it's hard in situations like that. You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing I saw that was an original unused cover Steve Ditko did for uh amazing fantasy number 15 and the unused cover looking at it i'm like you know on the one hand uh it's a lot more dynamic i feel like than the cover they used because it has the original cover of course is spider-man like carrying the guy and it's just a straight on shot the unused cover actually kind of has his has an upper view down on a street with Spider-Man swinging up toward the reader and the street down below yeah. saving a guy. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more dynamic looking, but also like my lizard brain is just like, I hate it. And I'm like, do I hate it because it's not the one I'm used to? Yeah, right. probably. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Probably. I'm looking at it now and I'm like, or this is way too young. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm looking at what the concept was, and uh, I agree. I don't know. I'm like, I hate it, but also, no, you don't. You'd have been fine <laughs> if this. You don't, dummy. You'd have been fine if this is what you got. It still would have been Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, anyway, so 101 or 102? Well, the other thing that I... The other thing that I found that I I thought was interesting, you know, it was the 70s. And however many strides women were making in terms of representation, there was still an upper limit to how far they were going to go. Uh, and apparently Dave Cockrum has said that the original plan for Phoenix was to have her fight and defeat... Thor or Silver Surfer or somebody on that power level. Jesus. Um, and somebody higher up shot that down. They said, there is no way we are going to have a woman defeat Thor. Um, and so they weren't allowed to do that. But instead what they did was... They had Phoenix fight Fire Lord, who had fought Thor and held ah. his own against him. And so it's basically like, well, by the transitive property, Phoenix could take Thor. Um, so, yeah. So we end well, on in this. My, in my head, Sorry. blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know. And maybe this is, again, some of that nostalgia we were talking about before. But in my head... Uh, 
there's no doubt Phoenix can take Thor. Like, well, yeah, I don't actually have to see it, but yeah, especially well, I, later Phoenix, where it's just like, oh God, you're going to kill a planet. You yeah, ki- you killed a planet. Like, well, and especially when you when you look at like other manifestations of the Phoenix since. Yeah, uh, it stands to reason. Yeah, the there's not a lot. There's not a usually when the phoenix is defeated, it is it is not through sheer just like smacking it around. No, um, I mean that's Rachel's half of Rachel's whole deal is like just keeping her own shit in check all the time. Yeah. Um, so, sorry. No, I'm done. Okay. Uh, X-Men number one of, or so, sorry. We end the issue with them being attacked by Black Tom and Juggernaut. Storm has a panic attack. Uh, and there's, there's people watching from the shadows, blah, blah, blah. It's leprechauns. It's leprechauns. We all know it's leprechauns because we've been here before. Whatever. Uh, X-Men number 102 is inked by Sam Granger. Um, this issue, this issue does several things. Number one, we're introduced to the idea that Nightcrawler becomes invisible in shadow, something that has been largely ignored by later writers and frankly, rightfully so. Oh, Um, come on. I think that could be fun as hell. There were there were problems with it though. There oh yeah, were no, fundamental like you can break issues. fucking stories that way. Well, uh, not <laughs> not even that. I'm saying that it is inherently incongruous. First of all, because when he's in shadow, you can still see his eyes, and as such, it's kind of like so. Unless he's sitting in shadows with his eyes closed, which doesn't really help him, uh, it doesn't really do a lot of good because he has glowing yellow eyes sure second of all there's the fact that his face is depicted as being in shadow all the time yeah so you should be able to see through his face at all times like how does that work like even ignoring the story implications of it it just is fun a fundamentally broken idea but whatever um we're also we also find out the backstory of Storm's claustrophobia. Her parents were killed. She was trapped in debris. She became a thief on the streets of Cairo. Blah blah blah. Um, it is interesting. So, like I said, we find it because of we are given a specific date for when that happens, which is 1956 which is right in the middle of the Suez crisis in Egypt. If you're not aware of the Suez crisis, it's kind of interesting to read about. Uh, It is the point at which kind of Britain no longer ranked as a superpower um, on the world stage anymore. Um, But the history, the history that led up to the Suez crisis and how it kind of played out and the the things that happened because of it are really interesting to read about having safely never lived through it so uh anyway so there's that um storm 
so Storm's anguish is such that even though Xavier's psychic powers are limited because of what he's going through right now, he still feels her uh, fear and her pain. Uh, and so he tries to tell Scott to get on a plane, get on the jet and go to Ireland. And uh, Scott's just kind of like, no, I'm staying here with Gene, no matter what. No. And I kind of, I like Xavier's anger here. Um, I'm not sure if it's solely because of what he's going through, but I love it because he's just like, you ungrateful piece of shit. Like, I made you. You are what I, you are because of me. And you tell me no? Like. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing a lot of, like, this is the Chris, this is the seed crystal for maybe Xavier, like when people are like, and by people, I mean me, uh, maybe Xavier's not like the greatest dude. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the mind wiping, there's that. But like, yeah. if he's capable of this kind of fucking outburst coming from that place, I understand he's on a lot. He's under a shitload of stress right now. But still, like, if that's where he immediately goes to when the barriers are already being beaten down, then yeah. holy shit, man, you've got them. you've got some things. There's this a is, lot of darkness there already. Yeah, because this is completely incongruous with what it is that, like, the stated mission of the school is yeah. to help these young people, like, figure out and control their powers or whatever, right? And form a community and, uh, you know, the make sure that we can integrate into uh, all everyone into a society where humans and mutants get along. This guy... Screaming about saying you ungrateful, unspeakable cur just because he got told no once. This yeah. guy is not that guy. Like, yeah. So that's yeah. like, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, so, you know, in the course of things, Storm snaps out of. So. At one point, Storm is, Storm is initially freaking out just because she's in, in she's in a castle and like once they bring them downstairs she starts freaking out even more because they're underground now uh once there once the fight breaks out and some of this comes crashing down uh she is able to snap out of it slightly simply because she can see the sky again uh, and so she tries to blast Juggernaut, and Juggernaut does something here that he generally does not do, uh, which I found interesting, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, he redirects the power she pours into him back at her, um, where usually Juggernaut just takes what people throw at him this he's actually taking it and kind of turning it back around which isn't something that's done a lot um, no. so i found that interesting but whatever um, uh the last thing i want to say is that uh clearly 
the tactics go to shit as soon as Scott's not in the room because, mm-hmm. like, they make a big like. Okay, so Banshee and Black Tom go at each other and make a big deal of the fact that because they are blood related, their powers do not work on each other. Which, uh, that's a whole thing. But like, because they're because of that, so they're ba- they're just hitting each other. Like, yeah. no dummy trade places with Nightcrawler. Do it that. What are you doing? Like, right. <laughs> it's just amazing how badly they fuck this up immediately. Well, yeah, and there's also this I mean, is not a team that's really had a chance to gel. I feel like this team later can function without Cyclops. Right. This team right now is still too raw and people are still, you know, Colossus and Wolverine are sniping at each other like the entire time because Wolverine keeps calling Storm abroad and Colossus is like, do not call her that shorty and everything. And so, yeah. Um, But Nightcrawler gets knocked out and is carried away by leprechauns. Um... (laughs) comics Um, you know it's it's one of those things do I think that the leprechaun thing here is kind of dumb yeah but I also think leprechauns in general as a as a concept are kind of dumb like in in terms of the pop culture version of like oh you're always after me pot of gold like all of that crap sure I'm just like that's really dumb um, but like, by the same token, like Thor's an Avenger and like, there's all kinds of other folklore stuff constantly going on. So I can't really get upset about leprechauns because it's just kind of like, if you start pulling that particular thread, right. the whole the whole thing falls apart. And I'm not necessarily upset. It's just, it's more of like, that's just a fun sentence. Yeah. Nightcrawler gets carried away by leprechauns. That's a fun yep. sentence. All right. Yeah. Uh, so 103, the cover is by Dave Cockrum and Irving Watanabe, and it's colored by Janice Cohen. Uh, this one, so we deal with Black Tom and Juggernaut. Nightcrawler is able to get in close Uh, using his image inducer to pose as Professor Xavier. Uh, In the end, we find out that uh, that Black Tom lured the X-Men here in order to take them out to leave Xavier defenseless. And as a result of that, we then find out they were sprung from prison and hired by Eric the Red on behalf of who we will eventually find out is Deken uh, to prevent Xavier from being there to make contact with Lalandra and help her. Um, there's a lot of this that's kind of taken as a given uh, at this point in time that I'm like, I'm not, it's one of those things that it's been a while since I've read a lot of these. 
So I'm trying to remember why specifically she's even coming for Xavier specifically. Um, and so it's almost sort of taken as preordained at this point. And I can't remember whether that's specifically addressed, but I'm just kind of like, okay, whatever. Um, well, it's difficult to read. Like, I actually like these, this story. I don't know why. Um, I, I like the black Tom stuff and there's better yeah. black Tom stuff that comes later, but like, this is, this is good. This is a good, like juggernaut and black Tom fighting un unweathered X-Men is fun. Um, yeah. It is difficult to, for me to read these and not like skip ahead in my head as I'm reading them. Right. Um, and that's, that, is that sort of kind of what you're talking about as well? Like, yeah. it's, like yeah. it's difficult for me to stay in the moment with these instead of be right. like, okay, and then Magneto and then, da, 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 okay, finally Lalandra shows up and we can actually get doing space shit and then that gets sideburned for a while and then hellfire club and then dark phoenix like like and that's five years max chill (laughs) yeah it Uh, is it's it's really hard you try to remain somewhat objective in the course of doing this so that you can enjoy them as they're presented and not in the overall context of what's to come yeah but like i think it's storm the storm stuff in this in this story is fantastic. Um, yeah, throughout all of it, not just her backstory, but also like every time the way she overcomes uh, the the claustrophobia in this issue in one hundred three is you know again Nightcrawler does something that blows out the side of the keep so she can see the sky, and then she's just like, okay, enough of this shit. And yeah. just goes buck wild. And it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but like the way that once she's like made her decision that I will be confined no more. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's rad. Uh, yeah. I love Storm in this. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so Captain Marvel number 47 has a cover by Al Milgram, is written by Jerry Conway and Bill Mandlow, penciled by Al Milgram, inked by Terry Austin, Al Milgram, and Bob Wachek, colored by Hugh Paley, um, lettered by Gaspar Saladino and Denise Wall, um, and edited by Jerry Conway. Uh, The... I... It is really hard for me <laughs> to enjoy Captain Marvel right now, um, which sucks given how we were kind of on a high after the Starlin stuff where he kind of reinvented things. Um, yeah, it just blows to bring him back to Earth. Like, literally, he's brought back to Earth, both... Well, literally and well, not even, not, It's not even that. I mean, Captain Marvel, what a... I mean, fine. Um, my issue is decide what you're going to do with Rick and Cap. Make up your mind. Don't be changing it every yeah. three issues. Like, just get, you know... 
decide what their situation is, and even if you're not happy with it, stick with it for a while, because, goddammit, this is really annoying. Like, I... I hate having a new Even if you're not happy with it, stick with it for a while every... so that... It's, it's gotta have some fucking... Some continuity to it. And I... I know there's... there's So there's continuity, but there's also continuity of purpose, continuity of storyline, wherein it's just like... You do a thing, and then that's the way things are for a while. And we yeah. haven't gotten that in a long-ass time. They keep changing what happens with, uh, with how and why and to what degree Captain Marvel and Rick are joined or replace each other, or what. And it, I hate it. Um, this issue is largely... The first part is he break it, Cap, Captain Marvel breaks into the um, Baxter building in order to try and free Rick from the negative zone. Uh, Fantastic Four... Or the Fantastic Four aren't... are mostly not in evidence with the exception of the Human Torch who stands in his way. Once they're able to discuss things for a second, Human Torch helps him. But they're unable to free Rick because... reasons. Because, again, we've changed the way shit works. Um, And then the second part of this is there is a Kree sentry being... having its memories wiped by two... Cree scientists uh, because of a concept that they've been kind of playing with, but that you know, at the point that at the point that I started reading and after, it never really came up again. So apparently it was a short-lived idea, but this virus of the soul that Cree suffer from on Earth. Yeah. Um, and that can even affect apparently their AI. Um, so they wipe, sorry, they wipe the uh, sentry, but then like they wind up, their ship winds up going down. The sentry is dropped over Mexico uh, and is found by a bandit. Who does not matter um, because he never shows up again after the next issue. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of it's it's whatever. It, yeah, yeah, they did. They did get back to the point where it's Rick and Mar or Rick and Marvell switching places between the negative zone and er- and here, uh, yeah. which sucks. But, you know, because Rick is such a pissy baby. I mean, I know we've covered that. Pissy Baby, the Rick story, um, is sort of his thing. But And, like, I get it, man. You want to have your own life. So work with Marvel so you can do that. Like, yeah. you guys need to work together to, like, 
get this unfucked. That should be the story. That it, yeah. And like that arc is interrupted by other bullshit. Yeah. And instead, he's like, well, now that I'm back on Earth, I'm going to go ahead and meet my manager again. And it's like, dude, you got other things to do. Like, let's yeah. focus a touch. Um, yeah, he's he's in such a hurry to restart his life that he's accepting half a life. And it's just like, if you rectify the situation, you can have it all back. Yep. But whatever. Um, all right. So that brings us to Captain Marvel number 48, which has a cover by Al Milgram and Danny Crespi, is written by Jerry Conway, inked by Terry Austin, and colored by Janice Cohen. Uh, this one continues a bunch of the stuff from... Uh, the last issue, the Sentry, the Cree scientists, and all of that. Um, so, the the short version is, Rick at one point in this reading runs into Trina, whom he'd known before. Uh, they go back to her place to talk, uh, and ostensibly that's all they do. He wakes up in a guest room, uh, and then is hit on by her roommate, and he's just like, no time for love, sorry, got stuff going on, and leaves. Um, these two Cree scientists... Uh, crawl out of the wreckage of the ship and proceed to start trying to track down Marvell so as to uh, help him or have him help them get their ship back up and running. The Cree Sentry, meanwhile, starts rampaging through Mexico um, with the help of its buddy. So the bandit who found the Sentry wound up being his thoughts and biases and whatever else got absorbed into the century. So it's kind of Mexican bandit guy in a century body. It empowers his buddy to become this villain called the cheetah. They start uh, attacking the super capitalists that they feel are ruining Mexico. Um, Blah, blah, blah. The, the Sentry... I, I don't give a shit. <laughs> um, the Sentry is destroyed here. Um, and everything. Um, and then, like, the two Cree scientists, um, Macron and Tara, are found by these people who are driving along. The implication being South Texas. Um, well, there. So, the Sentry and Cheetah are defeated. This issue. Uh, oh, there. No. This is the. Uh, I thought it was this issue, and the next issue was Ronan. Uh, next issue is the Ronan. Yeah, next issue is also Ronan. Oh, okay. My bad. Sentry, uh, Sentry, and Cheetah kick the crap out of Marvel. He ends up in prison in a jail cell 
in Texas because they were pretty sure he was involved somehow with all the massive destruction, which he was. Uh, he burst out through the back because he's be- because Rick has been in the negative zone for far too long now. He busts out the back. They switch places, but now Rick is just in the middle of the desert. He collapsed. Macron and the other one find Tara. Tara find Rick, and then the uh, well, maybe they all find each other at the same time. Yeah, well, Macron no, they, and Tara. The two, the two drivers found them before, and then, and then, they then the four Rick. of them find Rick. Yeah, and that's where Whatever. this one ends. Uh, this this one's not great. Skip it. Uh, I mean, if you have a hard on for annoying Mar- Marvel stories, go ahead. Yeah, this is right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, so that brings us to number 49. Uh, number 49 has a cover by Al Milgram and Steve Lealoa, written by Scott Edelman and lettered by Denise Wall. Uh, it turns out that in the so Rick wakes up Tara um, is checking him over and then maybe they have sex. Like, I'm not really sure what's going <laughs> yeah. on here. Uh, she they, closes she, the door and she, they're up there for a while. <laughs> she, ta- she definitely makes a pass and then shuts the door and we don't know what the hell happens um, because he looks completely like, what? Uh, sure. I don't and know. he's nude under the sheets. We yeah. Know that, like, he's keeping those sheets tight to hand because, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. Go Rick, I guess. Um, but in the end, they, they explain to, uh, they explain that their ship went down. They explain the whole virus, blah, blah, blah. Um, in the course of things, it turns out they also had on their ship Ronan the Accuser, who was going to be treated for this virus of the soul. But now Ronan gets free as they're on their way to the ship. And so it winds up that there's a fight between Ronan, Marvell, and then the Sentry and uh, Cheetah. The sentry is destroyed. Once the sentry is destroyed, Cheetah loses the powers that were granted to him by his pseudo friend. Um, Ronan is knocked out. Uh, Well, no. Ronan. So Ronan succumbs to madness. Tara uh, goes to protect. Uh, Marvel and winds up being blasted and killed. Macron, who has been kind of getting less and less rational, uh, is just like, oh, but I loved you, and all of that. Um, again, I just, I can't do Marvel right now. <laughs> it's just pick a thing. Pick a goddamn thing. Yeah. This book has been so goddamn all over the place. And I had hoped that I had genuinely hoped that when Starlin 
did the whole cosmic awareness thing that we were kind of get going to get to the Marvel I was expecting. And I have been woefully disappointed in that regard. I mean, we get a little bit of the cosmic awareness, like a tease of it right before he destroys the century, but it's nothing. It's, it's nothing like I'm, I'm having a really hard time. So I hate constantly having to bring up the comic skate stuff and stuff like that. Um, uh, gross. Yeah. Well, so with the Captain Marvel movie and all of that, a lot of people have just been like, Captain Marvel is a guy. Marvel was a man. Captain Marvel is a guy. Um, but first of all, no one gave a shit about Captain Marvel uh, when he was a guy. I mean, no two ways no. about it. No. The most interesting thing about Captain Marvel was when he died. Yeah. He got um, cancer and died, and we were all very sad for some reason, but nobody could figure out why. Um. Uh, and so he's kind of become a sacred cow because of that. Um, he show people talk about him, and it's just like Marvel, Marvel, and it's just kind of like yeah. But when you go back and read the Captain Marvel book, it's kind of shitty. Like you can you can debate whether um, Monica Rambeau, uh, Genus Vell, or Carol Danvers are a better Captain Marvel. Whatever, I don't care about any of that. What I'm saying is specific to Captain Marvel of the Cree, his book is generally crap. Um, we have a little bit more to go, so maybe they pull it out in the end, but I'm not holding out a lot of hope. No. So, Amazing Spider-Man, number 167. Has a cover by John Romita uh, and is written by Len Wein, penciled by Ross Andrew, inked by Mike Esposito, colored by Glynis Wein, lettered by Joe Rosen, and edited by Len Wein. Um, <coughs> we have a few things going on this week. Um, first of all, Marla and Jonah are getting ready to launch the new Spider Slayer. Meanwhile, we have a new villain called Willow the Wisp. The thing that I've, I've always find really funny about going back and reading books from bygone eras is the fact that the covers always talk about, like, check out the new superstar character we're introducing. And then you read it and it's Will-O-The-Wisp. And you're just kind of like, I feel like maybe we're throwing around the word superstar a bit liberally, but by the same token, I recognize that from a marketing standpoint, you can't 
you can't have a cover blurb that's just like, check out the new character. No one's going to remember a year from now. Like, you can't, no, you can't have a, and watch us try something. Like, that's not going to work. Check gonna... out the, check out this piece of shit. <laughs> hey, kids, do you like this? I'm like, no, that'd work. Watch um, as we throw stuff against the wall. Well, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, meanwhile, Aunt May is joining a protest uh, because the landlord of her building is getting ready to do away with rent control. Um, so all the gray hairs in her building are protesting that. Um the major reason I I think at this point in time, whether or not this winds up becoming something else, I couldn't say, you know, fuck, the landlord could turn out to be Wilson Fisk and it'll be a whole thing. But the Yeah, because we've got the, another we've got another plant in this week's issue where it's like, oh, I don't know I don't remember what this is, but I'm like You're clearly it, a thing. You're clearly a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which we'll get to that in a second. Um, The the reason that I find this, the main reason that I think this is worth mentioning is that the, this leads Peter to maybe think that, you know, Aunt May is stronger than I've given her credit for. Maybe I don't have to keep lying to her forever um which also leads him down the same path with mary jane right he's kind of he gets a little lost in his own head because he's like maybe you know it not only do i think maybe aunt may could handle it but also if aunt may could handle it then why am i keeping it a secret from you know why am i keep i understand why i'm keeping this a secret but it's begun he's like starting to see the pattern which is keeping this a secret actually ends up putting the people that he cares about in as much danger as if they knew and uh, yeah and causes problems with his his interpersonal relationships and so it's just like yeah just fucking tell somebody you don't have to tell you don't have to announce to the world i'm peter parker but like tell mj yeah, you like, need, well, and it would just be easier to have somebody on the inside. Like, you don't have to do this completely alone. They uh, can run interference. Yeah, they that's can, great. You know, yeah. Um, there's somebody you can talk to about all this stuff and just be like, uh, the Bugle and then Spider-Man and then blah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that goes anywhere anytime soon. It probably doesn't, but it's nice to be, to just be like, Hey, there's yeah. Yeah, bud. That's a thought. Like, let's pursue that. You should explore that. So, yeah. Um, And he fights the spider slayer or spider slayer for the first time. It goes poorly for Jonah. Yeah. Uh, Um, Well, because the will of the wisp. No, he runs into a wall. Uh, Well, that's, well, well, so there's that there's uh peter goes to pay a visit so 
he fights the he fights the spider slayer um they so he goes and pays a visit to joe robertson yeah uh, at joe's home uh and he's just like has jonah been acting weird lately and joe's just like you presume way too much about this relationship I am not super thrilled that you come to the bugle to talk to me. Do not come to my home. Get the fuck out of my car. Um, Excuse me. But he does tell uh, Peter that Jonah has been locked in his office some laughing over some pictures in his desk. Additionally, we have Harry, Liz, and Flash out together, um, and they have a run-in with uh, Harry's psychiatrist, Barton Hamilton. Barton is obviously something. We don't know what yet. Uh, Well, I do, but... I don't. I'm Googling it now. uh, the The short version is... When Harry, so the pictures of Peter disposing of the clone's body were taken by Harry. Harry was hypnotized by Barton, who, in the course of their sessions, found out about Harry's dad, found out about Harry being the Green Goblin, found out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, yada, 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 hypnotized Harry into going and taking the photos hypnotized him into forgetting that he had done so barton is the one who sent jonah the photographs on and on and on barton eventually becomes the green goblin for like a minute (coughs) excuse me um god yeah okay yeah sorry my voice is not apparently 100 percent yet um the upshot of all of this, though, is Spider-Man happens across... So Spider-Man breaks into Jonah's office to get the envelope with the photographs. In doing so, uh, he escapes before a security guard finds him. As he's swinging back across the city, he runs into Willow the Wisp, who is breaking into a safe to steal an envelope. This leads to... You know, a moment of Will-O-The-Wisp thinking that the envelope that Peter dropped is the envelope he was stealing. And yeah, um, while they're fighting, the Spider Slayer shows up. And yeah. Uh, All of this happening on the ice of the Rockefeller Center. Yeah. So Amazing Spider-Man number 168 has a cover by Ed Hannigan. Uh, the short version is this. We have Will-O-The-Wisp and we have the Spider-Slayer. Uh, they kind of trip over each other a little bit, uh, in this three-way battle. Um, the Spider-Slayer winds up, uh, so Will-O-The-Wisp feels an excruciating pain and disappears, the Spider Slayer winds up running into the uh, statue of Prometheus and it falls over onto it. And uh, so Jonah and the Spider Slayer are 
sort of sidelined for the remainder of most of this. Um, Peter goes back to his how to his apartment and opens the envelope and discovers what the photos are. They're of him disposing of the blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Um, we find out that the Willow the Wisp is working for Jonas Harrow. Uh, Jonas Harrow is the one who created Kangaroo and uh, Hammerhead. Hammerhead. Right. Fuck. Yeah. Um, so in the course of things, we find out that Harrow is has also created Will-O-The-Wisp and uh, can cause him pain. The pain that Will-O-The-Wisp felt in the last issue was Harrow recalling him. Um, but yeah, Peter, meanwhile, is working in his dark room. Uh, Mary Jane comes over. They have sex. Um, she leaves. Uh, at which point Peter takes the envelope back to Jonah's office and puts it back in his desk. <coughs> Excuse me. The rest of the issue is Spider-Man fighting Will-O-The-Wisp. Uh, in the course of things, Harrow, it turns out, is observing from the crowd below. And so Will-O-The-Wisp has to continue the fight. Harrow is making Wisp kill Spider-Man. He doesn't really want to, but he's like, it's the only way I can regain my humanity. Spider-Man, I like what Spider-Man does here, which is basically, yeah, but if you kill me, the humanity you're trying to regain is going to be lost anyway. Um, this causes Will-O-The-Wisp to try and go after Harrow. Um, but then he disintegrates. Uh, Spider-Man's Spider-Sense tries to tip him off and uh, to something in the crowd below, but he doesn't know what. And end of issue. Um, these two issues are okay. Will-O-The-Wisp, I don't care. He never really becomes anything worthwhile enough to even care about the these in a retrospective sense. Um, but he's not, he's not, he's not like, say, the kangaroo where he shows up and I'm just like, ugh. Like, he, he's okay. Um, the Spider Slayer is whatever. Uh, See, that's the problem with a couple of, with these this story to, for me, from my point of view is like, are these two issues is because there's so much fucking Spider-Man. Like, I don't know other than what you've explained with the, uh, Barton Hamilton thing. I don't know what thing is going to be a thing. Like, yeah. Because is this, uh, the first time that he starts to see Aunt May as other, anything other than a fragile, uh, someone fragile that'll be crushed if she finds out the truth, and then maybe he can also think about start thinking about telling Mary Jane. Is this the thing? Like, is these the two issues that do that? Or, yeah, you know, because that doesn't happen still for like ten years. Uh Well, so Spidey and Mary Jane get married in the 80s 
prior to pri- so I know at some point they break up and he starts carrying on with Black Cat but whether or not Mary Jane finds out before they break up or not I'm not sure that is a question um <clears throat> yeah Aunt May, I know, does not... So, she categorically does not find out until um, the 2000s. But I know during the Clone Saga, when the... Well, during the 90s, they killed her off. But then it turned out that it wasn't actually her and blah, blah, blah. And before the fake Aunt May died, she told him, I know you're Spider-Man I've known for a long time. Yeah, it looks Uh, like that happens in, like, Amazing 257. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of of this is not going to have a payoff for a while. Uh, I know that the Barton-Hamilton thing... We have about 10 issues before we find out that it was Harry that took the photos. Yeah. Um, so that one becomes a little more immediate. Um, a lot of the threads, I genuinely don't, I don't know. Flash mentions, there's talk of the fact that Flash is kind of off and we know from Spectacular Spider-Man that he's off because of Shawshan. And that... <sighs> at least progresses in the reading this week rather than just being like, is she in there? I, I swear she was, who was that? Ah, like there's something a little more definitive at least this week. Um, but well, yeah. that's because flash, so, if I don't, if I remember correctly, flash pulls a B and E. Yeah, he does. He does. Um, but at least it's forward momentum on that, which, which we had been saying, like okay, oh yeah, let's get to something. Here. I'm, I'm completely fine with it. Flash being with it being flash pulls a B and E, just because it's like let's fucking go, man. Like yeah, I need somebody to get impetuous here, or not impetuous isn't the right word. Um, Slightly reckless. Yeah, um, there we go. I do. Need so yeah. That. Uh, so amazing Spider-Man number one sixty nine. Uh, the cover is by John Romita and Frank Giacoya. I will say, uh, I re- so I like this issue uh, because he deals with the photos in pretty short order and I really like what he does. Um, so, uh, in the course of, um, you know, Jonah and Marla are dealing with the spider slayer robot and and marla's like it's fine we could we knew what we know now what works and what doesn't and we can upgrade it and jameson's like i'm gonna do something else and so he goes and he there's a brief thing with barton but who gives a shit um because it doesn't move anything it doesn't move anything Uh, it's just like eh, there's there's a, yeah, this is the there's something up with this guy segue. That's it. Yeah. Uh Jameson shows up at Peter's place and he's just like 
he tries to rip off Peter's mask, it, which is to say he grabs Peter's hair and starts pulling <laughs> uh, because he thinks his his takeaway from the photos is that Spider-Man killed and replaced Peter Parker, which. All right. Um, I mean, that's but that's one way to go about it. Yeah, but honestly, that's more believable than there was a Peter Parker clone. Like trying to explain what really happened. Okay, so there was this guy, the Jackal. He cloned me, um, and then gave all my memories to the clone. It's a whole thing, and then that that shouldn't work at all. No, well, okay, so it should. We're going with genetic memory. It's fine. Um, and have you read Dune? It's really good. Um, <laughs> and he goes, uh, there will yeah. be, mo- be a movie soon. Just wait until that comes out and it'll make sense. Uh, uh, yeah, but okay. So Jonah's whole thing is you're Spider-Man and you've replaced Peter Parker and I'm going to prove it. And Peter's like, I am not. Quit fucking. I'm Peter. Quit pulling on my goddamn hair. And he's like, let me see this evidence you're talking about. And Jonah's like, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Uh, we're going into a little too much detail for this. But, it, it, like, the way that he plays Jonah is kind the, of nice. Yeah, no, I'm I'm perfectly okay with spending a minute on this. Because the way in which he goes about putting an end to this is pretty well done. Um, yeah. So he... Yeah. He basically... He's like, okay, wait, I, like, he's, Jonah's like, why would I trust you? He's like, hold on, let's, for a minute, let's just assume I'm Peter Parker. I'm the best photographer you know. And he's like, well, yeah. He goes, hold on, I've I've got some spares, I gotta go look at something. And so, because some of these angles, like, once he finally looks at the pictures, he's like, some of these angles look familiar. Um, And he goes to his box of photos and starts rifling through them until he finds... A picture of Spider-Man and a picture of him him and Mary Jane on a beach. Um, And he's like, look, I could do this. He's like, I have these pictures right here. I could easily make the composite that you've got in your hand. And Jonah's like, well, shit. He's like, who gave you these pictures? They're clearly fake. And he's like, god damn it. Um, And yeah. And P- so Peter is just like, all it would take is a double, a double negative and you could create this photo out of uh, pieces of other ones, uh, which, as we find out, is how he created the ones that he's showing Jonah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I love so, that J- Jonah's, it, it speaks to both Peter being really badass at what he does but also Jonah not really knowing what he's looking at. That he's... Peter's showing him the fakes. Like, that's the part that it takes a minute to, like, wrap your brain around, is that's what he was doing in the darkroom earlier, was using the real photos to make fakes that he could make the real photos look like fakes later. Um, Right. it's, It's masterfully done, and he gets... He thinks he's just the bee's fucking knees after Jonah leaves, though. And I'm like, Peter Parker, you need to slow your fucking roll because every time you get happy, life kicks you in the goddamn teeth. Well, this is true. Uh, 
I will say Jonah Jonah does display here that he's good at what he does because he doesn't take Peter's explanation right off the bat. He's still just like, but you have those photos. How did somebody else get them? And Peter, thinking on his feet, says, well, my former roommate was the Green Goblin. And he would have had access to my box of photos to create these other ones. I'm not saying Harry Osborne is the one who sent them, but maybe Harry created them and someone else sent them or whatever. And Jonah's like, God damn it. (laughs) And storms out, giving Peter the opportunity to destroy the photographs. Um, So, uh, the last part of this is uh, Peter's out swinging around, finds some guys, follows them, and happens across a some costumed thugs. Uh, a figure in the shadow steps out, and he's like, oh my god, the size of the dude, that cigarette holder, it's clearly Dr. Faustus. Well, he thinks it's, it's not. Fake. Or it's clearly Kingpin, my bad. Yeah, he but it's actually Doctor Faustus. Yeah, sorry, um, I I fucked that up. Um, yeah, spoonerism only for people. Yeah. Uh, no, that's like not a social social dyslexia. I, I don't guess. Know. Uh, uh, yep. So America, uh, American, American Spider Man, <laughs> uh, number one seventy. Has a cover by Ross Andrew, Frank Giacoya, and Danny Crespi, and is inked by Frank Giacoya and Mike Esposito. Um, the The short version of what happens in this issue, as far as Spider Man, is that Doctor Faustus uses the hypnotic smoke from his cigarette to entrance Spider Man into helping them break into this facility. Once inside. There is a vaccine for something called the antelope flu uh, that he is going to doctor with a mind control drug. And when it is then distributed to every man, woman, and child, he will then be able to control anyone he wants at any time, whenever, blah, blah, blah. Spider-Man goes along with this because he's under Faustus's control. Uh, but ultimately, once they're inside the lab, the air filtration system uh, prevents the smoke from continuing to control him. So he breaks loose of the control and proceeds to take out Faustus and his men. Uh, beyond that, there are two other things um that happen in this issue that are really worth talking about one is mary jane goes with liz allen to go wedding dress shopping and that of course is like oh what's going on with peter and like Bleh. uh meanwhile someone is being shown uh the house in forest hills that Ben and May used to live in. Uh, it is 
the guy who killed Uncle Ben. He's like, there's something in the house. <coughs> we don't find out what for a while. But uh, he immediately, he, uh, he talks to a rental agent and the rental agent is like, let me show you this. And the guy's like, I'll take it. And he's after something that's in the house, whatever, moving on. Cool. Uh, the nice thing is this next issue, we can just breeze right past Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number six has a cover by Al Milgram and is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by An- Ross Andrew, inked by Frank Giacoya, colored by Stan Goldberg, uh, lettered by Artie Simon and, uh, and edited by Archie Goodwin. The first and last page are the only things that are new. The rest is a reprint of Marvel team up number three by basically the same creative team. Um, the, the upshot of which is Spider-Man swinging around the city runs out of web cartridge nearly has a bit of an issue because of that. While he's switching out the web cartridge, he thinks back to that time he fought Morbius with, uh, human torch at the end. He's just like, yep, that sure did suck. Okay. On my way. And that's it. Um, there are two things. I got halfway through this one before I realized it was a reprint. Well, not halfway. Yeah. I think I got three or four pages in and was like, hey. You know it's you. said on the title page, right? That it? Yeah. I don't know at the bottom of, the title. At the, at the bottom of the... So, so the first page where Peter's out swinging around, there's a thing yeah. at the bottom that says it's a reprint. I never look at that shit. You you need to. Like, come on, man. Uh, well, it's but, down there where the copyright from 2017 is. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. I'm not going to. I don't look there. Always okay. check. Always yeah. check. All right. Uh, All right. There, were two, there were two things that I will say at this point in time. One is specific to this issue. One, whatever. I just want to say it because this is the last issue we read this week by Ross Andrew. Uh, the first thing I will say is I am at the point now where when I see Morbius on the cover of something, my response is God fucking damn it. Oh yeah. And Um, it's not made like if I see Morbius and Daredevil on a cover, I just, I shut down and lose time. Like, yeah, I, I, I wake up later. Um, Yeah. Um, outside my house, just face down in my lawn. Covered Uh, in blood. Don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Blood and car oil. That was really weird. (laughs) Neighborhood pets have disappeared. (laughs) Uh, anyway, the, the other thing that I will say, I, so there are a lot of, there are of course, tiers of comic creators and I'm not, I'm not talking in terms of ability. I'm talking in terms of public estimation of their skills. There are the people that are way up at the top that everybody's just like, man, this guy's awesome. Uh, Among Spider-Man artists, that tier is going to be, you know, your John Romita's, your Steve Ditko's, your uh, Todd McFarlane's, whatever. At the bottom 
are the people that are straight up unsung heroes. Ross Andrew, I feel like is tier number two, where there are a lot of people that like his art, but I feel like he honestly kind of deserves to be in tier number one. Yeah. Uh, because his art is phenomenal. Yeah. He is solid all the way through. And I just, I've really come to appreciate his artwork and I feel like he deserves more attention than he gets. I think uh, the first time I reckon, like, reckon could, the first time his name like stuck with me was with uh, issues of Hulk a few, uh, mm-hmm. a few months ago. And that was really where I first started like paying attention. Um, and you're right. He's, he's always solid. Um, yeah. And sometimes better than solid. Um, but this one is a fucking Morbius story. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, go for it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number seven is, uh, it has a cover by Dave Cockrum, written by Archie Goodwin, uh, penciled by Sal Bashima, inked by Jim Mooney, colored by Don Warfield, and lettered by John Costanza. By all means, say what you were going to say. I'm trying to remember what the hell happens. Peter walks home in the rain because he smells like bologna. That's the first I, part. I will say this is this is one thing I... So, okay. So the very first part of this is uh, Peter pays a visit to Morgan for having had the hitman uh, come after him. He kind of fucks Morb- Morgan shit up for a minute. Nothing, nothing like lasting, but he yeah. spins him around in a chair and knocks his thugs over, whatever. But I will say what I like is he goes to collect his clothes, his civilian clothes, and gets them out of this heat vent. And he's, he's feeling really good about himself because he's like, man, like after I found those frozen clothes, uh, sticking the, sticking my clothes in that heat vent was a really good idea. Not only are they not frozen, they're actually really warm, but then on his way home, everybody is just like, Ooh, and he realizes that the heat vent was from a deli. And so he, he reeks of meat smells (laughs) Which I feel like I feel like at least a portion of the people on the street would just be like, "Oh, you smell good, man! What a Whoa. what is that? What is what that? Is, what, why do you what smell is that? like? Why do you smell like meats? You smell like <laughs> you smell like meats, like a variety. And I, I feel of- like at this point you could sell a cologne that is deli <laughs> deli musk, <laughs> like, uh, but whatever. Um, in addition, we have Flash, uh, dealing with the Shawshan thing. Um, he goes and like, he gets definitive proof because he sees her in the window mm-hmm. up above. He doesn't do the B and E this, this issue that's right. uh, later, but like, but he does definitively see her in the window of that restaurant. And he's like, I knew it. Which, yeah, dude, like, we've established. It's Shashan. Um, but so the thrust of this is 
Morbius comes back after erasing himself to a different dimension. This time around, it turns it he it turns out he has a passenger in his yeah. body. Um, that we find out is this thing called the empathoid. Uh, the the, the empathoid. Action, the action of the him. issue is that uh, Morbius kidnaps uh, Glory to draw Spider Man out, or to get information, either to draw him out or to get information on how to find him. Right from her, Spider Man um, saves Glory from uh, Morbius, and then it's revealed that the empathoid is. It's revealed at least to the leader or to the reader that the empathoid is the one that's pushing Morbius to do this. Right. Whereas if it were just Morbius, he'd just be out sucking some blood. Right. Uh, so spectacular Spider-Man number eight has a cover by Paul Galassi and is inked by Mike Esposito and colored by Marie Severn. Um, the short version is this, the empathoid transfers itself from Morbius to Peter. Um, Peter goes back to his place and he's like, I need sleep. Leave me alone. I'll do what you want later. Just leave me alone so I can get some rest. And the empathoid's like, fine, fine, whatever. Um, because as Peter discovered from the fight with Morbius, the empathoid is able to cause tremendous pain to its host. Yada, 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 whatever. Um, Flash, meanwhile, breaks into the restaurant, confronts Shawshan, uh, finds out that the big dude is Shawshan's husband, and the big dude is just like, she is no longer your concern, go away. And Flash is like, okay, I'm sorry. You could have told me that. All right. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so after getting some sleep, Peter... Uh, goes out looking for Morbius. They fight, and the empathoid is just like, hooray, emotions. We find out that the empathoid was an android built on this dead world that Morbius transported himself to in this other dimension, and he wound up using up the rather sparse population of the world where he was created and had been f largely inert until Morbius showed up. Um... Peter kind of finds all of this out when he's taken over. So he goes along with what the empathoid wants as far as fighting Morbius. Since the empathoid is empathic and not telepathic, Peter is able to subtly form a plan. Um, at which point, in the course of the fight with Morbius, he diverts to a football game uh the packed crowd and the emotions therein start to overwhelm the empathoid this is nearly screwed up when morbius then attacks him further but as a result of all of this uh the empathoid winds up because even this stadium has more people in it than the world the empathoid was created on he winds up being overloaded by the emotions 
at play and um, separates from Peter and passes out. <clears throat> Ostensibly dies. Well, he so, calls in a body and he's like, I'm going to take it with the Fantastic Four and hope it never has another day. But the the thing is um the wiki says passes out so what i am trying to do as we speak is confirm whether or not the empathoid ever shows up again um and the answer is no other than other than entries in the official Marvel handbook, the empathoid does not appear to have shown up again, so it is safe to assume for the moment that it is in fact deadish. As much as an android can be dead, it's dead. Yeah. So Spider-Man takes it to the Fantastic Four, Morbius is just like whatever. We'll deal with our shit later. Peace. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. Um so that brings us to Eternals number 11, um, which has a cover by and is written and penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Mike Royer, colored by Glynis Ween, lettered by Mike Royer, and edited by Jack Kirby and Archie Goodwin. Um, most, of the, most of this issue is Eternals arriving uh, in in Olympia. Um, we're introduced to a ton of Eternals we've never seen before. Not uh, all of them get names. Not all of them get names. Some do. We meet some of Icarus's specific relatives, like his uncle, um, and so on and so forth. The major thing about this issue is that there's a bunch of stuff with the Russians freaking out over one of the Celestials that's hanging out in Siberia. Um, there are two generals, one who is, uh, saying we have to destroy it. One is saying, you know, like, that's your answer for everything. Maybe you should chill the fuck out. And, uh, in the end, they wind up, uh, making a plan. The higher ups wind up making a plan to try and destroy the celestial at this point the general that was like chill out uh turn he leaves and several of his retinue go with him and it turns out they're all eternals and they go to olympia yeah because at the, is... at the end of the end of 10 was when uh Zerus was decided to form the overmind omnimind uh, and that's Unimind. Unimind, whatever. Everybody's heeding the call of Zerus to the Unimind. Yeah. Um, what is interesting the the standout part of this issue for me, and this is this goes to my fundamental, I guess, problem with both Eternals and uh the fourth world stuff is that it's not that there's not cool stuff because there is, but it's fairly, it's kind of sparse 
when it happens. Uh, it's pretty thin on the ground. And so like the amount of crap I have to wade through to get to the cool stuff m- turns me off. Um, well, like, and then Kirby's art is just all over the place. I mean, it, it always kind of has been, but in this book particularly, it is. Especially when it's smaller panels. Yeah. Kirby um, needs a big panel to have the amount of definition that he wants. Yeah. And when he's when he's writing and drawing, I don't, I will say, I don't think Kirby is as strong an inker and... I can be wrong on this, but I think Eternal, in the case of Eternals especially, um, well, actually, this issue is inked by Mike Royer, so that might be the problem. Uh, the yeah. inks may be what's causing, because some, some of the art in the smaller panels is really muddled. Oh, yeah. But. And I'm looking at it again and thinking, yeah, maybe you're right that it is the inking in this. Yeah. Because the. Like the full page spread of Nezer when the the Eter- the celestial when um, the Russians are looking in on it is fucking amazing, right? Yeah. Like holy, like this is the shit that you want to yeah. see when it comes to Jack Kirby drawing celestials, and it's goddamn awesome. It's everything else that I'm just like, God, what is ow? Like yeah, there's a bit of an assault. Um, the other thing that I think is funny is that just funny. And then I'll let you finish, uh, is the, cause I forgot is, um, Cersei straight up kidnaps professor, which is fun. Yeah. And she's kind of playing with him. Like, Oh yeah. It's like a cat with a dead rat. Yeah. She's just like, ha, 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 it's so hilarious how, like, pathetic and human you are. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of cute, but, like, also, like, you're not, you're not on my level. And so you're just, you're, you're like a, you're like a kitten with a box on its head. Uh, <laughs> like, and uh, so. The and thing- he's so flabbergasted that he doesn't even have time, ta- like, by everything. He just got teleported across the earth. And is now in Olympia, which has so many sites that I'm amazed his brain can handle any of it. And he has no time to be, like, to realize that she's straight up toying with him. Like, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, sorry. The, yeah, go the, ahead. The two things, there were two things on in this issue uh, that I really like. One is the fact that there's an interesting thing that they that they do with Nezer the Celestial that I don't know that anything's ever done with this again. And uh, it's an interesting idea. And that is, at one point, it's kind of talking about what's going on in Nezer's incomprehensible mind. And it talks about, so Celestials have these helmets that, I mean, I, God only knows what's actually underneath. Um, but it talks about how Nezer emotes somewhat and that the way in that, in that, the way in which that emotion 
manifests is with like a crackle of energy across the face of the helmet. Yep. Um, which I thought is really interesting because you have this race who are so far beyond anything we can understand. And not only do they have a completely inhuman look to them, but even their emotions are such that they wouldn't register as emotions to someone looking on. And I thought that was a nice little touch. And I don't know that that ever, ever goes anywhere, but it was interesting. It's just so like, I get what Kirby wants to do here with the celestials. Like the problem is because he's, he's wanting to play in like Cthulhu level, like power. incomprehensibility like what that means like why because he's kirby and kirby went to actual war um and like that's his that's his thing and i get that um and i even like that in theory i love the idea of like cosmicism uh in terms of if there are gods, we they would not care about us. Right, like, exactly. Like I mean, like trees or um, right. the celestials or like what Cthulhu. Lovecraft well. like, without like, the racism, like all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, it's it's really the problem is you can't. It's real hard to also have an adventure with that, which right. is kind of what we're doing here. Um, the thing that I think. Is, is maybe the takeaway is that so far the celestials just wander around and they do what they do like mm-hmm. and we're just moats right mm-hmm. like whatever you we finally we the russians got one to pay attention like whether or not and i guess the americans did before because it wasn't Ereshim, but it was one of the other ones that uh grabbed that bomb and mm-hmm. basically just held on to it yeah um but he got they got a response they should be happy about that unfortunately well and that's so here's the thing that i that i really like about the ending the russia the russian general with a mat on for everything fires off a nuke at nezer and they're watching it it's streaking toward Nezer, at which point it just turns around and starts streaking back toward them. They're all horrified. Oh my God, whatever. At the end, you've at the end of which you find out the missile never even left the silo. Everything that they saw with it streaking was Nezer just being like, "Yeah, you have no chance." And they all immediately experience like that connection to. A celestial, much less the terror of everything that was happening, caused like immediate cardiac arrest amongst everybody involved. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, that brings us to number 12. So, uh, Eternals number 12 is, uh, has a cover by Jack Kirby and Frank Giacoya. Uh, the, the majority, so we still have more Eternals arriving in Olympia. Um, Thena returns from the city of the Deviants and causes a bit of a kerfuffle because she has Carcass and the Reject with her. 
um, all of the female Eternals in uh, the immediate vicinity start getting wide-ons for the reject. Um, but I think what's really interesting here is the fact that so Carcass, despite being a monster in a, in terms of appearance, uh, is very well-spoken and everything and kind of has the soul of a philosopher. Uh, which the reject, having only ever known the arena, chides him for mercilessly. But I mean, Carcass gets in a couple of his own jabs after, right. well, after yeah. Fina leaves. Um, and right. I fucking love Fina. Fina's the only one I give a shit about at all. Um, yeah. Because, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. They go back and forth, and eventually, eventually, Fina scares off all the women. And because she's like, yes, because you've known nothing but battle and death. And they're like, hey. Pass. Ooh, uh, that's uh, uh, we gotta go join the Unimind. All right. Um, I don't need a fixer upper. I've right. Got, I've got a I've got eternity, but I don't have that much time on my hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then she turns around and she's like, "Okay, I gotta go do a thing. Neither of you are invited uh, until I get back. Reject. You watch over him and make sure he doesn't die. You watch over Carcass and make sure he doesn't die." And Reject's like, no, fuck that. I'm not doing that. And he's like, I don't... She's like, okay, I don't think I made myself clear. While you're here, you two act as though you're brothers. Um, I, like, those are the rules now. And that means that anything that befalls him is your burden to carry as well. And she's like... And he's like... Oof. Like, she lays down the fucking law. And yeah. it's like... Yeah, it's that, really... So she's just it. like, you won Sanctuary here, this is how it's going to work. And uh, yes. to, to the point that the reject's like, well, fucking fine. Yeah. Um, and Carcass is just having a day. Like, he loves this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then... She... And I I think what's interesting is, as Carcass, after Thena leaves, Carcass and Reject are talking for a moment, and Carcass is just like, you know... You need to chill out. You're in fucking paradise, dude. Just enjoy being in paradise. And the reject is just like even paradise has dark places. Like it it has it's had it has its shadowy little alleys where yeah. people get up to shit. And so yeah. Um so I really I really like carcass and reject here yeah i think they're really interesting and i'm i'm curious to see where they go and thena because Thena's the, the only one of the eternals that's proven super interesting in terms of character yeah um she's the only one that i'm care that i care about in terms of character and everybody else is so ill-defined at the moment that i don't it's like yeah yeah uh and then the carcass and reject thing is like i know this is going this is something it's going somewhere and i don't know what it is yet and that's the thing that i'm only that's i'm mostly interested in as far as our plot goes um because everything else is so what are we doing like what is yeah. going on 
And that's kind of, you know, as we were saying before, some of that's by design, but like, I mean, they even do it in this, the next part is when they cut to Ajax and Dr. Dr. Margo's dad and his name, I still, Dr. Damien. And uh, they like, have themselves a little think about what's going on inside Erishim's head. And then they get real quiet and are like, you know what? Probably shouldn't even dabble with that. We'll pass. And I'm like, okay, is that what the story is? Is that the story? Maybe. All right. So, um, so everybody in Olympia proceeds to, so Zurus is in this tower that he starts doing the ritual for the Unimind. Everybody starts flying in and joining it. Um, Icarus brings what's her nuts, Margo, uh, and Cersei brings the professor, and they are allowed to join in the Unimind with the Eternals. Uh, at which point, the Unimind forms. And is a big giant head uh, and flies up into the stratosphere. And Erishem's just like, all right, you're doing that, huh? And that's kind of the end of it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know. It just it's it's really weird how the way that this ends, that it's just and then Erishem Killer of planets stirs and probes the dark heavens. He studies the Unimind. It is a product worthy of this. It is a product worthy of this puny world, but it cannot save the Earth once the decision has been reached. And it's like, yeah, what were we doing? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, top five. Top five. The Watcher's Guide's Top Five. For me, number five, uh, Carcass of the Reject, uh, because I don't know what that is, and it's probably the most interesting, other than just the Celestials being unknowable, it's the most uh, interesting thing of the story so far. I just want to see what that's going to be, as long as Thena keeps being, Thena keeps laying down mom voice, I think that'll be fun too. Yeah. Um, Number four is the full page of Nezer because holy shit like it's it's Kirby drawing Celestials it's fucking awesome right yeah um number three is the asshole Xavier seed crystal um like (laughs) (laughs) I know that there are better ways to phrase it but like this is the first time that we're really getting a look at the this is what Charles Xavier, Xavier is like deep deep down like when yeah. he's been broken down and battered a bit this is who the guy this is the guy you're gonna get yeah. um this is this is uh what am i trying to say um this is xavier with the mask off yeah um number two is peter and jonah and the photo confrontation just because like all of that works really well for the characters, right? Like they pay, it plays to 
Jonah's strengths because he's not a complete idiot, right? Like, he's got... If Peter didn't have pr- preparation, he's got him dead to rights. Like, yeah. they, they can't... He can't get out of that. Like, yeah. unless he... If, if he had... If Jonah had chosen to do this a week earlier, Peter would have just been like, God, boom. Yeah, the only thing that saved Peter here was the fact that he found out about them and was able to break in, get them, do what he needed to do, and go from there. So, yeah, yeah it's And then even, even being able to think on his feet fast enough to be like, to throw Harry completely under a bus... Uh, and be like, Harry could have stole the pictures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everybody does a really good job being who they are in that scene. And it's great. Yeah. Um, and then number one, and I know this is low hanging fruit and I don't care. Fuck you. Uh, Phoenix arrives. Cause that panel's fucking pet just goddamn awesome. And, it it is. I it mean, is. I know, I know. It's like, like we said, it's forever and a day until like we get some, re- we get to start get some really juicy Phoenix shit. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that might actually start the next time we read X Men. But like, and that all the the Phoenix stuff happens for a while, um, mm-hmm. and but it's it's great, and I'm looking forward to it, so I don't care. <laughs> Yeah. This, if this is an easy number one, it's what I'm doing. Yeah. Also, X Men was great this week, and I think we should just revel in that. It, X- yeah. No. No. I agree. I agree. That was really the highlight of the week for me. Um, even even the parts that didn't make the top five were still a highlight because I just I'm so happy to be reading X Men again and giving a shit about X Men again. Yeah. And uh you know early claremont yeah the it has it has its idiosyncrasies and things like that but it is it's still great so um so i have a couple i have a couple things that i wanna i wanna throw out some honorary mention (laughs) okay Uh, first of all because even though they weren't quite enough to make it into the top five, I still really liked them. Uh, and so they're like, man, I really want to, yeah. Number, the first of which is the sentence, Nightcrawler is, Nightcrawler is carried away by leprechauns. Uh, but the one, the one that I want to talk about, but that I kind of forgot to mention in... Um, in talking about the actual issue is one of the, one of the Eternals were introduced to in, uh, in number 11, uh, is Kingo. Um, so the various Eternals all sort of live in different places and Kingo, Kingo Sonan, is a Japanese Eternal uh, who (laughs) lived through the samurai era in Japan and is now the most famous Japanese samurai movie star. Uh, 
And I thought that was a really interesting kind of um, kind of world building thing that I just kind of dug it. It it's nothing big, but it's it's interesting. And I did not realize uh, that's the character that Kumail Nanjiani is going to be playing in the movie. Oh shit! They're they're changing they're changing the character to a Bollywood star, huh? But that's the character he's going to be playing. So we'll see. Uh, but like I said, I just th- I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Um, yeah. Um, as far as my actual top five, um. Number five is the the energy darting across Nezer's quote unquote face. Yeah. I thought was a really interesting sort of not only biological component to the Celestials, but also just an interesting wrinkle to how humanity is supposed to relate to them in general you know yeah uh i mean we try we try to humanize everything you know people talk about the expressions cars have because of the way their headlights and grills are and stuff like that we have a tendency to try and apply expressions to everything and yet here's this thing that not only is so utterly inhuman that it's just lines on a on a helmet but it's also like when it does make expressions, it's ones we can't even perceive. So, yeah. Uh, number four is Peter doctoring the photos. Like you said, I thought that was just really well handled. Uh, my top three are all X-Men because fuck it, whatever. Um, number three is uh, the fact that already already we have Gene going to a very dark place. Uh, and I looked at that panel again. I didn't actually remember it, but I looked at that panel again and it is fucking scary. It like, is. like Because, like, she's, like, got a bit of a shroud, like, a shadowed face, but her eyes are kind of glowing blue and there's, like, mo- there's, like, modified... The lettering is really scary as well. Um, yeah, because it's like, what if you died and brought yourself back to life? And Misty's yeah. like, "Whoa, there, girl! What the fuck?" Like her expression is very, um, I don't know. So <laughs> I was watching the Mod Squad yesterday, and uh, uh, did I tell you about my business venture? <laughs> yeah, like that is a that is a. <laughs> That what that reminds me of is uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force with the Jiggle Billy episode when um, when Happy Time Harry is like sometimes I like to just cut myself and <laughs> see how hard I can do it before I just pass out, man. And Jiggle Billy's just like. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. So, uh, <laughs> we jiggling. Uh, 
Rocco's Modern Life sketch or bit too. I don't remember a specific one, but it feels very that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that. Number two is yeah, Phoenix showing up. Like fuck yeah, I'm yeah. on board. Uh, my number one is Scott. Um, I so Scott. People shit on Scott a lot. Um, I am and, one of those people. And yeah, it's, I get it. Uh, but like the, uh, the thing that, the thing that, the thing about it is, yeah, Scott can be really stony. Uh, Scott can be kind of up his own butt. Uh, at times, depending on who's writing him, stuff like that. But his his crying with relief when he finds out Gene's going to be okay and his beating himself up for the wasted time before they got together and everything else I thought was just a really effective character moment and scott just really doesn't get those all that often especially anymore uh so he really doesn't um especially lately jesus christ yeah scott's been through some shit since 2000 uh Uh, there i scott has been slightly more interesting since uh House and Powers. Since House of pa- House and Powers, but I'm not sure yet. So Scott has had peaks and troughs because there was there was a peak post Avengers versus X Men when his powers were on the fritz and he was a fugitive and all of that. Uh, then it was just kind of like he's just kind of there. He's just kind of there. Whatever. And then now there's, it looks like they might be on their way to a peak, but I don't know yet. So we'll see. Um, Next week, we have some Iron Fist. We have some more X-Men, stuff like that. But the, the, the big new thing is we are getting Ms. Marvel next week. So um, join us for that because that'll be... uh, That'll be interesting. I have not... I think I tried reading Ms. Marvel at one point, but that was a long, long time ago. So, I don't know. Um, in the meantime, like us on Facebook. Follow us individually and collectively at, at Watcher's Guide MU. Uh, visit our website at watchersguide.com or email us at watchersguide at gmail.com or there is also a form on the uh on the website that you can email us through uh in the meantime also be safe do what you can to support those uh trying to survive uh be nice to you delivery people be nice to people at the store because damn um Wash your hands and take care of yourselves and have a marvelous week. Bye.